in the first chapter, beginning at the 14th verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. This afternoon by saying I please have to be here to thank Morris for his very kind invitation and also publicly thank Jane for her fine organization getting me here and all the details sorted out in email communication over these last weeks and months. It's great to be with you today, particularly in this particular week of prayer for Christian unity. Let's just take a moment as we follow before the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we gather in this place this evening, different people from different backgrounds, different traditions, but one in Christ, we thank you for the unity that is your church. We thank you for your word that feeds your church and for your Holy Spirit who brings your life to your church. And we turn now to that word. May he who inspired it be the one who breaks for us the bread of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when you're asked to preach at a service in week of prayer for Christian unity, there's a challenge to know what to preach. When I was in a parish ministry, I've been away from that for, goodness, almost 16 years now, but I used to preach systematically through books of the Bible. I sometimes even became an Anglican, used the seasons of the church year, very <laughs> in a weak moment. Um, but some always gave me the passage to preach on, either the lectionary or it was simply the next passage in the book of the Bible I was preaching through. Uh, and I preach about three times a month all over the place in different congregations up and down the island. And I always ask myself the question, how do I know what I'm going to preach on? And when Morris's invitation came uh, back before the summertime, and I said yes, I wrote it in my diary, uh, and then forgot about it. Uh, until Jane 
contacted me and said, Morris would like the reading for the order of service. Ms. Daniel read for us earlier. I've chosen Isaiah 43, not because it speaks about church unity, not because it has great thoughts about what denominations are and what we are together as the body of Christ. But because I think it speaks to the church. You see, church unity, particularly in this week, is not something we should come and philosophize about. It's something we do. Different traditions, different backgrounds, different faith journeys, different journeys that got us to this place over many years and decades have brought us this unique group that will probably never ever be together again. United in Christ, in the worship of God, sitting under the word of God, open to the moving of the spirit of God. We don't philosophize about church unity. At its best, we do Christian unity. And so today, I want to pick up some of these themes in, in, in Isaiah 43. And I've put it under a, a simple headline and got a little bit of clip art from somewhere. <laughs> keeping on, keeping on. That's a picture of Morris and I, about 40 years younger, and about two stone lighter each <laughs> when, when you sort of run. But, but the Bible talks about it, doesn't it? It talks about running with perseverance, the race of faith. If ever there was a time when the church of Jesus Christ in this island in Ireland needed to keep on keeping on, it's in this day and generation. If ever there was a time when we needed to do that together and run, yeah, in a group, different believers, different traditions, one God, one Savior, one faith, one hope one gospel. It, it, it's today. People talk about the church today and talk about Ireland, North and South today, and some people despair. Numbers are not what they once were. It seems to be harder. Many people seem to be turning their back on many of the great principles of life and community that we grew up with. And sometimes we can almost feel, how do we keep on keeping on? But this evening I want to think about, how do we keep going when it's tough? And this is especially for theological students doing their exams. <laughs> you see, theological education is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I'm sorry to depress you. <laughs> now, it's not just three years in a college. It goes on and on and on. And living the Christian life and working together as believers in our different denominations and seeking to serve the one Lord is not just a sprint. It's not even something we do one strange week in January. I'm never quite sure why these dates, but. It's not just something we do and have a service and then forget about it. It's something we work at in the good times and in the tough times. 
We do it together as churches, as believers, as Christians, but we do it also as individual believers. How do we keep on keeping on when the going is tough? When life is not on the mountaintop, but it's in the dark valley. When we're really struggling, maybe even to believe. We lose faith in the church. But we maybe even almost begin to lose faith in the Lord of the church. Because life seems so unfair, so hard, so difficult. And we doubt. And we fear. That's why tonight I want us to turn to that passage that Daniel read for us, Isaiah 43. It, it, in theological college, I learned, I was trying to say something profound theologically in the record tonight, that would sound good, but I, I learned in my homiletics that text without context is pretext. Great words. So if you just take a text, we all know the the young man who decided to just flick through his Bible and find this, what God wanted to say of the day and it turned up, you know, Judas was out behind himself and he flicked off the painting like that, what's going to be into likewise. <laughs> text without context is pretext. So what, what's the context of Isaiah 43? Now here's where you'll get in, get into trouble, uh, director at this college, and I'm probably not being invited back. But this passage, this bit of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40 onwards, looks beyond the day of Isaiah the prophet who lived in Jerusalem. Now there are two understandings of this, and you can debate this in your Old Testament classes over from your students. Some feel there are two Isaiahs, Isaiah and Judah Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote chapters 1 to 39, where the scene was in Jerusalem, and things were going fairly well, and he was there. And then the scene in chapter 40 following, which 43 is part, is, is not in Jerusalem. The, the scene is a time when God's people lived as exiles, when they were in Babylon. And some scholars will tell us, and some theological books will tell us, it must have been written by a second Isaiah, because we're at a different time. Other scholars and theologians will tell us, well, Isaiah was a prophet, and he was in Jerusalem and under this inspiration of God's spirit, he was prophesying about what would come in the future. So it was all written by the one Isaiah, some will tell us, but that really, in a sense, is irrelevant today. The importance is that this passage in God's word, chapter 40 and following in Isaiah, was written for a time when God's people were in exile. It was written at a time when Psalm 137 was written. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Who remembers Boney M? <laughs> By the rivers of Babylon. Not go there. That's probably good. Fill in. When we sat and went, we couldn't sing the Lord's song. Because we were in a strange land. You see, here in Isaiah 43... God's people are in exile. They're not where they want to be. They're not home. They're not in Jerusalem, the very center of their worship. They're no longer there. They're in exile, and they couldn't even sing the Lord's songs. 
as they sat by the rivers of Babylon. Their, their heart was so cold and broken. And they wept. And they despaired. Wonder if you've ever been like that. Wonder if you've ever been that place. Your heart was broken. It's my understanding that people, of course, would, would never show it. How are you, in fact? <coughs> but let me tell you, clerks at the General Assembly, and I suspect even directors of theological institutes, of those moments when our hearts are breaking. And staff and students and believers, you know, on the road for a long time, we know those times when we seem so far from home. We nearly can't sing. The Lord saw because we're in a strange land. Maybe you're there tonight. Well, God does something special in this passage. God assures people regarding their future. He comes and he speaks to his people. In exile, so bad, these people who were psalm singers, the first Presbyterians, these people <laughs> who loved to sing the Lord's song, couldn't sing the Lord's song because their hearts were breaking, but God assures them about their future. Part of the passage that Daniel read for us, he says this, I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will sail to the north, give them up, and to the south do not hold them back. God comes to these people were at their lowest and he says, I am going to bring you home. Do not despair. As these words were read to God's people from God himself. These people who were despairing, whose hearts were breaking. God spoke into their despair. <coughs> now another thing about theological college that we need to be very careful about when we handle God's word. In the Old Testament has so much to say to us as the Old Testament. We shouldn't always overly spiritualize. But I don't think I'm doing that when I say to you today, we live in what an American songwriter called Michael Carr once described. We live in a fearful, fallen world. And the world is full of great joy, great blessing, great gifts from God, but also since the fall, great pain. of many mansions that his son is preparing for us. And just as surely as God said to these people in exile, look, I'm, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to gather you from the east and the west, from the north and the south. God is gathering the people unto himself. I was with colleagues in our global mission council 
just last week, where we're having a special focus on Egypt and the church in Egypt shortly and, and assembly buildings. And I was talking on a video link with the believers in the Middle East, in Palestine, in Lebanon, who are suffering horrendously. The, and their joy for the Lord is amazing. Because in their despair, they have a hope that God is with them, but God is going to bring them home. You know, a believing friend. Just as God gave that promise to his people by the banks of the, of the river Babylon where they couldn't sing the Lord's song and were far from home, he promised them, I'm going to bring you home. He promises his church that one day he's going to bring us home. But really what I want to ask you tonight, what I want to see from this passage is, is that question, what about the journey? You see, whatever tradition you come from in the Christian faith, we know, we believe that one day we will be with the Lord in a better place. One day he's going to bring us home. But what about the journey? What about life before that day when Jesus either comes again or calls us home? Well, I just want to share two key truths with you now. Don't tell my Christian colleagues because you're going to get three points from a Christian <laughs> Two key truths. The first one is this about the journey. God gives these people and us in the church that bears the name of Jesus a promise for the future. It's found in verse 2. God says this. He says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And that's an amazing promise. These people were sitting by the banks of the Babylon, far from home in exile. And God brings them this promise, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to gather you from the north, the south, east, and the west. I'm going to bring you home. But how, God? How will we get through the rivers? How will we cross the Tigris and the Euphrates, part of the journey back to Jerusalem? How will we get home? God says to them, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Notice two words. Notice that word first of all. When. Not if. But when. When you pass through the waters. There's a heresy that goes around in the church. When I was in Christian Union a long time ago in Queen's University in Belfast, it was very prominent. Mostly heresies. Are there any Americans here? Yeah. <laughs> Most good heresies come from America. And they usually come to Britain first and then they find their way across to this island. And when I was at university, and it's back again today, there's a heresy that goes a bit like this. That if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, God will bless you. Now that's true. But Satan just takes truth and he just twists it, doesn't he? And he makes it into heresy. If you're a Christian, God will bless you and you will have health and strength, lots of money. God will prosper you and your family. That prosperity doctrine, 
and so prevalent in our Western Christianity? And has a has its source in the pits of hell. <coughs> I've met so many believing Christians who who are going through the pit of the mill in their life and and illness has come to their home. And, and some well-meaning Christian says that, oh, there must be hidden sin in your life that you need. Rubbish! We live in a fallen world where the Savior we followed was whipped and flogged and crucified and died. He says, come follow me. <coughs> when you go through the deep waters. But look at that other word. I will be with you. And that's the promise God gave to these people in exile <coughs> in a strange land. It's a promise that God gives to his church in Ireland today. His church made up of every denomination and people of different outlooks and perspectives, those who love Jesus. Not if, but when. You go through the deep waters, God says, I will be with you. It's a promise he gives to every believer here tonight. When you go through the deep waters, I will be with you. My Christian friend, be you whatever denomination you come from. In the unity of the Spirit, that is God's word for you and me. God gives a promise for the future. But if it even were more possible, God tells these people something even more wonderful. He gives them a promise for the future and he points them to what he has already done. Look at the first verse of Isaiah 43. This is what God says. Listen to God's word. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Those are wonderful words. Now just so... The students here recognize that even Presbyterians learn a little bit in college. <laughs> I got from a book the fact that the verbs in this sentence are in the perfect tense. I should have asked the students what that means. What does the perfect tense mean? I, I, I grew up in a generation that I didn't learn English at school, I just meant to imbibe it. My older brother and sister learned the perfect tense and the imperfect tense, and I suspect some of you learned them in school. I had to learn it when I studied Greek and Hebrew. The perfect tense is a past event, describes a past event with present and future significance. Now, why is that important? Is it just so you can say a scholar came and taught us about the perfect tense? See what God's saying here? You see when he points these people in exile at what he's already done? Do you see what he's saying? He says, I have redeemed you. Perfect tense. You are redeemed. Perfect tense. You always will be redeemed. I have called you by name. Today, 
I know you by name. I always will know you by name. Perfect tense. I have made you mine. Today you are mine. You always will be mine. Do you grasp why? Because that is the truth of the assurance that is in the gospel for believers. I preached in this passage in my first church in Lake Patrick many years ago, 30 years ago. But God taught me what it was about on a particularly difficult day. It was June 2000. One of my closest friends in ministry, many ways my father in the field, I called Trevor Morris, was Minister of Lucan, not far from here. Trevor was elected moderator of the General Assembly, and myself and another couple of friends were his chaplains. I was a young minister at the time, and I was going to get to preach to the thousand people in our General Assembly, I think on a Thursday morning. And on a Wednesday, I started to feel very unwell. By Wednesday night, I ended up in casualty in White Alley Hospital. And you know, I hope there are no medical doctors here, I'll insult them as well as the Americans. <laughs> when, when a doctor doesn't really know what's wrong, you can say, well, it must be a virus. So, so they took me in, and I didn't get to preach to the assembled gathering in assembly buildings. God was teaching me a little bit about humility, perhaps. <laughs> I stayed in. They were doing tests, and on the Sunday morning, I was still in, and I took what they described to me at the time as a massive heart attack. And I was rushed to coronary care, and I was given morphine. If you've never had morphine, I thoroughly recommend it. Whoa! <laughs> 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 I got that out of the recording, <laughs> But I was, I was in a stupor. The doctor said, we think your heart's badly damaged. We're sending you to City Hospital on Monday for an angiogram to look at it. Now, for those of you who are trained for the ministry, you need to learn this. If you're a minister and you take ill in the hospital, your colleagues come and try to finish you off. <laughs> they come and read at you and pray at you. And I thank God for a wonderful elderly Catholic war assistant who said to all these Presbyterian ministers round about Dublin, I don't care who you are, you're not getting in. <laughs> but Trevor Morrow turned up. He was actually driving back down to Lucan with Paris and got a message that I'd taken a heart attack. He turned around and came back up on Sunday. Now, my dear Catholic um, ward sister didn't know what a moderator of the General Assembly was, but she thought he was some sort of a Protestant pope, and Trevor probably thought that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so she let Trevor in. Trevor got in. And I was uh, seemingly unconscious. I was on drugs to keep me calm and sedated until I went to the city and probably for a triple or quadruple bypass. And Trevor read this passage. Afterwards, he told me as he read and prayed, he thought I was probably just sleeping, but I heard. And I don't come from a a charismatic background. That's not my churchmanship. But all I can say is that day in that hospital ward, God's Spirit 
ministry to master. We told you this morning. Trevor, it doesn't matter what lies ahead. It doesn't matter what the future brings, even death. For it really counts has already been done. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. It was only later I read and studied and understood the perfect tense. You see, for us as believers, that is true. For no matter what happens to the church and I, no matter what we face in our individual Christians' lives, yes, God gives us a promise for the journey. When we go through the deep waters, he will be with us, but he gives us something even more important. He reminds us what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And the last verse that Daniel read for us in verse 13, it says this. Yes, from ancient of days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? Believing friend, you who are part of the one church of Jesus Christ, hear the word of God. For the journey home to glory. When you go through the deep waters, God will be with you. But what really counts, He's already done, and we will celebrate that in a few moments. For He has redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb, He has called you by name, by His Spirit, and He has adopted you into His family, He has made you His. And nothing can ever change that. What an amazing God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for these beautiful words. God breathed words. Your <clears throat> inspired truth you bring to us in the scriptures tonight. Father, we pray that anything has been of man, you would take from us. But that we would treasure your word and store it up in our hearts. Lord, I pray tonight for <clears throat> brothers and sisters who are many with us this evening, who, who are, are really struggling. Father, may they know that you are with them. And for each of us, Lord, and the challenges we face in the church today and the challenges that are just around the corner for us, for young men and women going into ministry in this day and age, Lord, let them know that what really counts has already been done on the cross. And 
as we declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to have confidence in it. Redeemed. Called back. And yours. For the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a beautiful modern version of the 23rd Psalm. A little refrain written by a modern hymn writer, Stuart Townend, which gives us a little response to the words of Scripture. And I will trust in you alone. I will trust in you alone. We stand the same.